you know that? That's true. Growth happens when we are engaged, relationally connected, serving, reaching out, and using our spiritual gifts and natural gifts. That's really where growth happens. It's when we work things out as we walk together in the Lord. Sundays are more of a time of kind of like catching understanding and vision and revelation, but you've got to work it out or it doesn't result in growth in your life. And there is a 1950s era model of church where the pastor is the, quote, hired professional, and he does the setup, the cleanup, the visitation, the music sometimes, and connecting to other people. And the people come and they sit in chairs as they're more of an audience. That's not a biblical model. Did you know that? That's not a biblical model. A biblical model is where the pastor, according to Ephesians chapter 4, preaches and teaches to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints there means people that Jesus has set apart for himself, that his kids. Can you say, I'm a saint? You need to say it. I am a saint. You are a saint. And my primary job is to make, equip you to make disciples and to do work of ministry in your life, in your daily life, where you work with your family, with your friends, for you to be a light, for you to be an instrument that God can use through you. So I have been lately wearing myself out, honestly. I've been doing too much. I've been failing to invite other people to come alongside me and help me. I don't think I'm burning out yet, but I do need to make some changes in order for me to finish my race well. And one of my goals in life is to finish my race with my uh, sanity intact <laughs> and my physical body still working. And um, I have not done a really good job in equipping you and forming teams and giving people, helping people learn what their spiritual gifts are and learning how to use those things to be Jesus' body in the world, to be his hands, his feet, his back, his cooking skills, whatever they are. You know, Paul says in Romans 12 that God has made us to be like a human body, right? We are all a different part of the body. And each part has a strength, and each part can't do what other parts of the body can do. And I'm one of those people. I used to run a remodeling business. And in that business, I was called the jack of all trades. I did everything okay. I didn't do, I excelled in some things and did most things okay. And, and I did that when I was a young married man for many years. I can't do that in the ministry. I can't keep trying to do what I'm not wired to do because it sucks away from what I'm supposed to be doing with excellence and it takes away from you the opportunity for God to exercise you in the area of gifting that he's given you. I need you guys. I need your help. We're going to talk about how in a sec. But first of all, let me ask, how many of you like announcements? <laughs> Why not? Because you see them all day long on the radio and the, and the TV and the computer, right? They're just a constant barrage. I notice whenever we talk about and use the word announcements, our congregation, some of them, their eyes just close. Others of them just get restless and fidgety. So what biblical purposes do announcements hold? You know, I'm not sure. But I have decided not to use the word announcement anymore on Sunday mornings. I'm going to at least try, okay? Because what, what is biblical is the, is the word participation and invitation. So instead of announcing events, I'm going to shift to inviting you into relational and participatory opportunities. People can blow off announcements, but they tend to pay attention when they're invited into something. So it's really about connection. 
we at Calvary connect in small groups and in invitations to events and projects. That's what Terry did this morning. She's invited us into this amazing project where we get to, do, to touch the lives of many, many children who desperately need Jesus, who are living in an incredibly broken culture around them. But I need to be able to count on people to help me with some of the projects that we have that we do together. We, we gather socially in a, as a large, as a church family, only four, sometimes five times a year. We do Easter, breakfast. We do Father's Day barbecue usually. We do a back-to-school picnic or barbecue. And we do a Thanksgiving dinner, right? And sometimes we do Light for the Lost Banquet, which we did just this last week. But we're only supposed to do that once in a while. So here's where I need the practical help. There is a clipboard around here somewhere. I think uh, Sherry's got it. Thank you. And um, I want that to go all the way around if it hasn't gone to everybody. But um, I need people that I can count on that are really good at things like, and some of this is very simple, not hard at all, but setting up for a banquet, pulling, you know, pulling out chairs and tables, I know lots of you guys, that's very easy for you. Cleaning up after a banquet, those are the people that stay after. Do things like dishes and vacuuming and putting things away. People who like to cook. People who love to do games for kids. Miss Brandy oversees that, and Kate, Miss Katie does. And um, I need people that love to reach out to lonely people. And so... I'm asking you guys to come alongside me and be kind of like, you know, those two old guys, Aaron and her in the Old Testament that lifted up Moses' arms when his arms got tired? I need some of that because I'm doing too much, and I don't want to burn out. So I need some people. So in this clipboard that's going around, and you could, you could also sign up, sign up on our app too, but um, if the clipboard's going around. It's got some categories, and I just need some faithful people. If I had six guys signed up that said, yeah, I can sit up tables and chairs sometimes, then I, if I could get two of them on any particular banquet or whatever event, then we'd be covered. So we have Thanksgiving dinner together on Sunday, November 21st. That's only how many weeks away? Today is the 17th. So it's about a month away, right? And so that's why I'm, I'm wanting, saying, hey, I need help. I tried to do way too much. I'm, I, I just pretty much tried to do everything for the back to, I mean, for the life for the lost banquet. And uh, I had people talk to me and say, you know, Pastor, why are you trying to do everything? He's like, got me. So anyway, um, this is going to go around. And I just wanted to talk to you about it. I wanted you to know how I'm doing and that I do need your help because I really want to make I want to make it to the end of my race. I really do. And uh, I'm not a good delegator. I really not. I appreciate my board because they also call me on this. They ask me, Pastor, how are you doing? How are you really doing? And I'm so thankful they do. So I just pray that many of you will look at this and say, hey, I like to do that and be a part of that team. It doesn't mean you'll have to be there every time we have a banquet or, some, or an event. It just means that I could call you, and if you're available, you'd be saying, yeah, I can help out. So I appreciate it. I feel guilty asking you to help. There's a problem here. It's the problem of the way I think, is I need people want to know how can we be a blessing? How can we use our spiritual gifts? And that's an area we want to really grow and develop in. So thank you for listening. Now I'm going to shift gears, and we're going to look at James. And I don't have slides today. So you're going to have to uh, pull your Bible or your phone, your device out, and turn to chapter 4. And I'm going to pray for our offering before I do that. And again, we aren't passing anything, but we have envelopes under the chairs, and we have a box next to the wall there and by the front door. And we encourage you to be faithful in, uh, in being supportive and, and with your tithes and offerings. It's, it's an act of worship before the Lord. So let me pray, and then we'll take a look at James. Lord God, I just thank you for your people. 
I'm so thankful that I'm not the chief shepherd, that I'm an under-shepherd, and I get to lean on you, Lord. And I'm so thankful for these amazing people that you've called to be ministers, you've called to be saints in your church. Help us, Lord, to really break out of that old model where it's like a, a paid professional preaching to an audience. You never designed that, Lord. You designed it to be a, a coach working with a football team or a soccer team or a baseball team, whatever. Gifted people that are doing the actual work of ministry. So help me, Lord, play my part well and not to try to play everybody else's parts. And Lord, now we ask that you, I pray for you to bless our people. They are so generous, and I ask that you just meet every need that they have. And I just thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, James chapter 4 is a different chapter. I have, I don't think I've ever learned so much in the Word, in one chapter of Scripture, as I have in the last month as I've been soaking in this passage we're going to look at today in chapter 4. It's, it's really kind of a shocking passage of Scripture. What James does is rather shocking to me. Now, I am not a real confrontational person. I'm more of the, the diplomat. My wife says that she's Grinch and I'm Grace. And uh, James here, there's no, it's, it's all Grinch, it seems to be. He's very confrontive. And what's weird is that he's just finished chapter 3 by saying something totally different. He says in the end of chapter 3, the last couple of verses, the wisdom that's from above is first of all pure and peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and full of good fruits, or full of fruit, the fruit of good deeds, excuse me. It shows no favoritism, is always sincere, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. And now he slaps them in the face. And these are people that the Apostle James, is, who's in Jerusalem, most likely doesn't know has never seen them. They are probably people that, that came to Jesus on the day of Pentecost or the, the things that happened shortly after that, and they've gone back to their cities scattered in the Roman Empire, and they've formed little churches, most likely starting out in houses, and they're meeting together. And James says this to them, what's causing the quarrels and the fighting among you? Like, what? James? Why? What's going on, James? And he says, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? How do you like your pastor talk to you that way? I'm just going to keep reading when I read this, the whole chapter, or this whole portion. You want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it from them, take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you're not asking God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers. The King James says adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he's placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. 
Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. And anybody else kind of go, what is he doing? That's out of left field. Here's this guy that's been talking about peace, us being peacemakers, and all of a sudden he's accusing us of fighting. <laughs> Makes you go, Holy Spirit, you put this in the Bible. What's going on here? I call this an ice water change of subject. We just got the bucket dumped on our head. So let's take a look at this. And, uh, and I'm going to ask you guys questions. And please feel free to jump in with your answers. You don't have to be right, you know. You just need to try. But I love it when people interact and engage. So first of all, James says to them, people that he probably, I mean, these are a bunch of churches in what's called the diaspora or the scattering outside of Israel, Jewish little Jewish communities, and now they're groups of Christians meeting in homes most likely. And he says to them, what's causing the quarrels and the fights among you? How... How does James know there's quarrel and fighting going on? Any ideas? Yeah. Somebody must be reporting what's going on. And he's hearing about it. Do, would you think that, that there's a lot of this going on or just an occasional one? Yeah. I mean, he's basically saying what's, he's, he's blanketing them. How come you're fighting and quarreling? He's saying to the whole group, everywhere his letter is going to go, he's asking that question. So we wonder, what does James learn? This word um, to quarrel, in the first verse there, literally means to go to battle. It's where we get the word belligerent. And the, and the word next to it, the fight word, that's more of a personal thing. So the belligerent is more of it's like a, a, like a going to war, but the, uh, the word fight there has to do with a personal conflict, contention. So why is James asking them this question? Is it because he doesn't know? They don't because he doesn't know the reason why they're doing this? I think he's trying to get them to look at their hearts and examine themselves, right? You know, we may not be involved with the same kinds of issues that they were dealing with, but we can still learn from this chapter. Even if we don't see fighting going on here, for a church that is experiencing dissension and fighting, this is a rebuke, but for the rest of us, it's a warning to not let it, our church ever get to that point, right? So where we each have to guard, as it says in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, we have to guard and protect the unity of the Spirit, and that we can do that. Do you think it's normal? or common for churches to have fighting going on in their midst? How many of you would say, yeah, I think it happens a lot? Uh, <laughs> How many of you go, no, it shouldn't be common at all? Yeah, it shouldn't be, right. So, How many of you have ever been through a church uh, fight or altercation or split or something like that? Anybody? Yeah, I've been through like three, three big ones. I've been through churches that blew apart and became multiple other churches, things like that. It's no fun. It's, it's traumatic. It is, and it, and it impacts communities, drives people away from Jesus. How many of you have ever seen the bumper sticker that said, Jesus, please save me from your followers? That's somebody that experienced a church split or something like that. So... 
you know, I did a little, I did a little background homework. I, I went and looked at each of the churches in the New Testament, each of the books of the New Testament, just, uh, you know, using my computer so I could do it quickly, to find out out of all those churches that all these apostles wrote letters to, how many of them were actually dealing with fighting going on and division in their midst? You know, the good news is I could only find three out of about 15. And the three are in Corinth, where 1st and 2nd Corinthians are written to, from Paul. And Galatia, there's a pretty strict warning there. Church in Galatia was a little community in Turkey, southeast Turkey. And then Jude's little, Jude's just a one-chapter book right before Revelation. He talks about a church or churches, he's talking to groups of churches, that have got people in their midst that are fake believers that are causing division and stuff. So I am encouraged that, that there's a whole lot of churches like Ephesus and the Thessalonians and, and uh, Colossians and other churches that the letters that are written by the apostles to them, no indication that they're having any problems. That gives me hope. Because I don't see any major stuff going on in us, among us, that I'm aware of. Now, of course, there's things going on, spats between husbands and wives and things like that. There's, that's just normal. How many of you have had a good fight with your spouse recently? I have. Good. Good to hear it. Thank you for being so honest. So, <laughs> we, Brooke and I will say, if you never have a fight, that means one of you is a clone or one of you isn't real. Because somebody's not being honest. Good. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's go on a little bit. Um, here's what Paul said to the Corinthians. Some members of Chloe's household, which is a, probably a house church, have told me about your quarrels, Corinthians. And my dear brothers and sisters, please stop. And so he, he goes on to talk about, you guys are acting like babies, spiritual babies, because you're fighting among each other. And then to the Galatians, Paul says this, if you go on hurting each other and tearing each other apart, be careful or you will completely destroy one another. So those are the other two churches. And, and Jude, again, I just told you kind of what was going on with there. So I'm glad that we're not fighting this, but we can learn from what James has to say. And the first thing James says, he starts with a partial answer, the rest of verse 1. He says, don't these, don't they are fighting and stuff, doesn't it come from evil desires at war within you? Okay, evil desires. That word desires there is where we get the word hedonistic or hedonism. It literally means that you want something so bad to satisfy your need that you're willing to do anything to get it to satisfy that desire in you. Maybe in this case, I don't know, he does mention jealousy, things like that. Maybe it was a desire to be in control, the desire to be the leader, the desire to um, be respected or to be recognized. I don't know. James doesn't go into detail. But he says a lot about it. to understand my notes. I'm going to move down to verse 2. Here's what he says. He goes a little deeper into the tactics of their fighting. You want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure.
You ever seen anybody? You sh we shouldn't see anybody in church that acts that way, but there was a whole church full of people or a bunch of them that did that were that focused on the material world that getting those things would actually, they would stoop to destroying and hurting other people. Wow. That word commit murder there or kill is, is, is really the word, that's what it really means in original language. Unless we think we, that's not me, I've never killed anybody. Um, there's a verse in 1 John 2, verse 15, where John the Apostle says, anybody who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Wow. Right? So we have to, we have to take a look at these things. We, we really do. And when he says there, where did I go? Oh, you fight and wage war. It's the same, same couple of verses that he started with there, the same words that he used there. Isn't this interesting that he says, you don't have it, what you want, because you haven't asked God for it. And when you do ask for it, you're asking for it wrongly. And it literally means you're, you're doing a bad ask because your motives or your heart is wrong. Jesus, or excuse me, uh, John the Apostle said this about asking. Because remember, Jesus said, I'll give you anything you ask in my name, right? John said that, uh, Jesus said that in John 14, 14. But when we read the bigger picture of Scripture, we start to understand what Jesus' meaning was. So in 1 John 3, verse 22, John said, we will receive from him whatever we ask because... We obey him and do the things that please him. Now, there's a big qualification for your asking for anything, right? And in chapter 5, verse 14, John adds, this is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So when Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, what is he saying? He's really saying, if you ask for anything that is consistent with who I am. That's what he means in my name, right? It's consistent with who I am will bring me pleasure. Will obey, you're obeying me and seeking me. Then we can ask with confidence for whatever it is that we are asking for. Now that's why when I pray for people for healing, I can pray with confidence. Of course, I try to listen to the Holy Spirit because sometimes the Holy Spirit says, it's not time yet. Or he may say, I'm doing something through this situation. I'm going to, but in my timing. But when I, when I, when I pray for healing, I always say, Lord, is this according to your will? Is this being done in your name? And, and because he loves to heal people, I know that most of the time that's exactly what he wants to do. Now, in verse 4, James gets down to the real issue with these people. He says, you adulterers. And he's talking about spiritual adultery. He's not talking about physical or marital or relational adultery with people, between humans, okay? He says, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? And he says it again. Big emphasis here. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So what is adultery? Define it. I, I made up a definition. I consider it to be unfaithfulness to a covenant relationship where you've made a commitment because you get involved with somebody else. And spiritual adultery is where you have a, a commitment, a covenant to walk with God. Jesus, you've received his sacrifice for you on the cross, and then you turn and start giving your affections, your time, 
your money, your life to other things. We call those things what? Idols, exactly. Thank you, Daniel. Anything you give your heart to, you give your affections to, that takes the place of God is an idol, right? It doesn't have to be made of stone or, or silver or gold. In the Old Testament, Israel was called God's wife, right? That's in Isaiah 54, 5. Your husband is your maker. And the book, the prophet of Hosea, is a big talks about that whole concept of, of a, he had the prophet marry a, a lady who was a prostitute, and then she got involved with other people and left him. And it was, a, it was a picture illustrating a story that God wanted the prophet to understand and tell God's people. And then at some point, God tells the prophet, go back and get her out of bondage, buy her back, and take her back into your home. Demonstrating that even people that have left the Lord and broken their covenant and become adulterers, God is, opens his heart to buy them back. And he forgives us and receives us back when we have erred and gone into idolatry and fallen away from the one who purchased our souls. In the New Testament, Paul talks about in Ephesians 5 and Jesus talks about in Revelation that Christ Jesus is our bridegroom, right? And we are his church. We are his bride. And there, that's a picture of, of a, a huge, amazing reality of who we are to the Lord. But it also means that when we turn away from Jesus and embrace the world, we're sinning against a love that has bought us out of a slave market of sin. Gosh. And then James jumps on them again in a really powerful way in verse 5 and says, don't you realize that the scriptures teach us that God is jealous for the spirit he has put in us? And you know, half the interpreters say that's our human spirit. The other half say, no, that's the Holy Spirit of God that has taken up residence inside of us. I really believe that's what it's saying here. The literal, literally, it's he's saying here, with envy yearns the spirit he has placed in us. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 that you and I are the house or the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Look at yourself. I'm a house. Can you say, I'm a house, I'm a temple? You are. You're a temple. You're a dwelling place of God. That's why he tells us that, that he gets jealous because when we give our bodies to other purposes, when his spirit is living in us, it's like we're dragging the Lord through a sewer, isn't it? In Ephesians verse, or chapter 4, verse 30, the Apostle Paul says, Do not bring sorrow or grieve God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. How do you handle a jealous lover? Anybody ever dealt with a jealous lover? Oh, man. Talk about volatile. You handle them very, very carefully. God is a jealous lover. He is jealous for your heart. He wants all of you. He does not want to give any piece of you to any other lover. Jesus died on the cross for all of you, not just a piece. Everything you withhold from him, you're saying what you did for me is not enough. It's really an act of rebellion to withhold yourself from the one who died to give you all of his life and the only one that can really satisfy you anyway. So James now tells these people how to get it squared away. Starting in verse 6, he throws them a lifeline. He says, it's like he turns the corner so fast, he says, but he gives grace, he gives more grace. 
The NLT says he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's quoted from Proverbs 3, or yeah, 334. By the way, the notes are on your app. I forgot to mention that to that on the church app. I call the church app Calvary in my pocket because I can get the everything right there in my pocket. So, so James throws him this life ring, and he says, here, there's hope for you because God gives grace. Grace here means God gives an enabling strength for you to be able to get out of the hole you're in, to get out of the mire and the mud and to get back on top of the rock. But then he gives a very clear prescription, steps to take. Verse 7, so humble yourselves before God. That, that worst word there, humble is not the best translation of that word. It is the translation of the word in verse 10 that says, humble yourselves before the Lord. This word literally means to submit yourself to the authority of someone else. It's a military term. It's, it's, where, um, it's where a general can say to a colonel, hey, I want you to go do that. And the colonel says, oh, you're my boss. You're the general. And you submit yourself voluntarily to that. It's the word that Paul uses to say to wives, uh, submit yourself to your husband's leadership. It means you choose voluntarily to arrange yourself under the authority and direction of someone that you trust and someone that God has placed in authority over you. So the first thing James says to these people is, you need to submit to God. That's the problem here because you've been an adulterer spiritually. You need to come completely under God's leadership and direction in your life. The second thing he tells them is to resist the devil. What's the devil doing in this again? Here's the devil. He keeps popping up all the way through James. We talked about words that are lit on fire from hell, ignited by hell. We've talked about demons that believe, but they don't. They tremble because they, they don't believe the way we do. And now he talks about resisting the devil. Uh, what's the devil been doing? Anybody an idea? This, these people that are fighting and quarreling, you think the devil has anything to do with it? He sure does. But he has to have material to work with, doesn't he? And he, takes, he works with our flesh. When we, we choose to, to leave God behind and be unfaithful to him and start to fight with one another and go after what we think we need and what we want, then we're just opening ourselves up for the devil to come and give us all kinds of ideas of what we need and think we have to have to survive. When he says resist the devil there, that word resist is where we get the word antihistamine. You know, antihistamine is a Greek word. It's composed of two words, anti and histamine. Anti means to not, and, and the word histamine means to stand up. So Paul, so James is telling them, stand up and say no to the devil. Once you see, recognize that he's been involved and mixed up in this, you've got to just say no. It doesn't say chase him. It doesn't say, uh, you know, focus and talk to him. It doesn't say any of that. It just says resist him. Just stand against him. And what's cool about that is it, it says that the devil will do what? Flee. It means run away. You don't have to rebuke him in the sense of spending time, wasting time, or addressing him and talking to him. All you got to do is say, no, go, and stand, and he, he will leave. He won't leave forever, but he'll leave until he gets another opportunity. Then the next one is so important. It says, come close. That's the word, draw near. Draw near to God. Who has to do the drawing near? We do. He's saying, make a choice. God's already there. He's waiting for you. He doesn't have your heart. Then he's just going to keep waiting. 
But James says to you and me, he says, draw near to God. And what will happen? The response? God will draw near to you. Isn't that a precious promise to know? How many of you have ever felt like God was so far away? I can't hear him. I feel like he's just he's so far away. Well, the good news is, is no matter what you feel like, if you choose to draw near to God, he's going to draw near to you. Now, sometimes you'll be able to feel it or sense it. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you'll realize he's there in other little ways. But no matter what you feel, God keeps his word, and he will be close to you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Those are two metaphors, washing hands and purifying your heart, that have to do with what? Anybody? What's that look like? Repenting, yeah. What does repenting mean? Yeah, it's a word that means to turn away from something and turn towards something else. So you stop going this direction, you turn and you go this direction, towards God, towards what he says is true. So washing your hands also, I believe, has to do with confessing sin and receiving cleansing. Remember in 1 John 1, he said that if we confess our sins, then he is faithful, just, faithful and just to not only forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, which means really take a look at what's in your heart, what is your heart condition. As a person that's had a heart attack, I pay attention to my heart condition. It's very important. And then he, he goes on. He says, because your loyalty is divided between God and the world. That's the same word he uses in chapter 1 when he talks about a man being double-minded in all his ways, unstable. That word double-minded is the Greek word dipsukos, which means double-souled. To have two souls, acting like two people in one body. And here he's saying, you're acting that same way again. And when he talks about that battle warring, re, re, waging war inside of us, Peter talks about that too. And Galatians, Paul talks about that and says, you know, you can't do what you want to do because you've got a fleshly person inside living in you and a, and a spiritual person living inside of you. And you've got to decide which one you're going to make number one and which one's going to die. He goes on in verse 9. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. That sounds so depressing and negative. But guess what? There is a time for tears of sorrow. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, that before there can be real repentance, there has to be godly sorrow. That's where we really acknowledge and own where we have been living and what we've been doing, where our mind and our thoughts have been, where our affections have been. And we get real with God and we say, this is what I've been doing and thinking. God, I own it. I confess it. I ask now, Lord, you would forgive me and cleanse me. And, and if it is real, then tears and sorrow and gloom and those sadness he talks about should be evident. I'm not saying everybody has to weep with tears. There are some people that just pretty stoic. But you know, for most of us, I remember, how many of you can look back and say there have been times in my life where I fell on my face and wept before the Lord because of my sin? Man, everybody here that knows Jesus should be able to say that. I'm so thankful for those times. I'm so thankful it isn't all the time. <laughs> We're going to wrap this up. He summarizes again in, chapter, in verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord. This is the word that means go low. 
Go low. Humble yourself before the Lord. It's the posture of worship, too, at least one of them. And it says, and he will lift you up in honor. That's the Father's heart. He's not wanting to beat you. He wants you to humble yourself so that he can lift you up. Because until you humble yourself, your fleshly person, your fleshly nature is going to want to run your life and dictate things and keep God at a distance. God is calling you and me this morning to go low so he can lift us up. We're not going to make any progress at all in our spiritual life until we're ready and willing to go low. As I close this morning, I want to ask you, where's your heart this morning? Maybe your conflict isn't fighting with a brother or sister or a spouse or somebody over some material thing or over a position or power or whatever. But maybe your conflict with someone else has to do with some other area of your life because you've been letting your affections go to something that's not the Lord. Maybe you're angry because no one would share an inheritance with you. I've seen a couple of those fights. Those are pretty sad. But they're very, very common. Maybe you're jealous of someone, someone that has seemingly things that you wish you had. Maybe you're angry and envious because someone else has got a retirement and a home paid for, and you're still having to work a minimum wage job. Maybe you're angry because circumstances you were counting on have, have all of a sudden changed. And what you thought you were going to get, all of a sudden the water got, the spigot got turned off. <laughs> There's an awful lot of reasons for people to get very angry and frustrated if that, those things become our object. But if God is our everything, we can be like the Apostle Paul who said, I've learned to be content no matter what my circumstances, whether I have nothing or a little or whether I have a lot. I've learned that he is all I need. So Calvary, I'm calling you guys today to, to examine your heart, recommit yourself to him as your lover, as your, as your bridegroom. And to also join me and praying that Calvary Church would be, we would be a people that our community would see our lives and go, I want to know their God. I want to know why they have that hope. I want to know why they have that joy. Ephesians 4, 3, the Apostle Paul said, and I'm going to close with this verse, be eager and strive earnestly to guard and keep the harmony and the oneness of of and produced by the Spirit in the binding power of peace. That's from the Amplified. Let's strive together for what God has and what he wants to do through Calvary Assembly and in us. Let's listen to the Apostle James' warning. This is what your church could turn into if you didn't guard it very carefully. Are you hearing me? I hope so. I'm up here not saying I've got it all together, but saying this is, word, this is the word of the Lord. James challenges me. Oh, he challenges me so much. It's not an easy book to preach through, but it's very, very powerful. And we really need to listen to what God is saying to us. Hear the word of the Lord through James. I just want to close by singing a little of a chorus. I think most of us have heard this one at some time. It's older, and if you haven't heard it before, um, just uh, listen and maybe pick it up.
Creating me a clean heart, O God. Now join with me. And renew a right spirit within me. Sing that part again. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, thank God. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, we thank you this morning. Ask that, Lord, as you're the one that says he, he, you give more grace. Lord, I ask for every one of us this morning that we would reach out and take that grace. Say, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord, to really be honest with where my heart is at. Help me, Lord, to receive this correction, if it's a correction for me or a warning for me. Lord, help me to really look at my heart and see, is my heart really completely God's or am I giving my affections to other things? Lord, Am I an adulterer? Lord, are my loyalties divided? Lord, I pray that there's anyone here this morning that does not personally know you, has not had a personal experience in which they have met you and know that their sins are forgiven and they are now on a journey with you by their side. I ask, Lord, that this morning they would recognize that and they would call out to you and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I want to know you. I want to know I'm forgiven. I want to have a fresh, clean start. Because you are the one that said that nobody who calls on the name of the Lord will be ignored. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if there are any here this morning, I pray that they would do that right now. They would begin to call on your name, Jesus, and discover what an amazing lover you are and forgiver and grace giver. Lord, how we need you. We ask that you would help us today as we go on from this point. Father, I pray that people would take time to come and pray, even though our, our altar's covered with shoeboxes. There are lots of chairs that we could stop and just kneel down and go low before you. So many of us, Lord, we need to go low. So we give you the rest of our day now, Lord, and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.